0: Now when I'm very good, and do as I am told, I'm mama's little angel, and papa says I'm good as gold. The stars are ageless. Are they? Miss big, Black movie
1: star, Miss rocking, stinking actress, no one ever leaves Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, your podcast host. In this series of The Final Girls, I'll be looking at one of the most controversial and surprisingly commercial subgenres of horror, an intersection between three of my most favorite things classic Hollywood, horror films, and movie stars. Over the next few weeks, I'll be journeying through the subgenre known as exploitation and how horror has both elevated and discarded older women. As a kid, I always got told to look for a woman if I was ever scared, if I ever found myself alone or lost. An older woman was a source of protection, comfort and goodness by default. At the same time, I remember the villains in the fairy tales I read. The stories of Hans Christian Andersen, the Grimm Brothers and extremely disturbing Slavic folklore that we do not have time to get into here. There was the Wicked Witch, there was the Sea Witch from The Little Mermaid and Baba Yaga, a witch who lived in a house with chicken feet. The villains were always older women and recently, perhaps brought on by my own re-examination of my own mortality and aging, I started noticing older women everywhere in horror. There's the mother with her sagging tits and unkempt hair in Barbarian, the dodgy grandparents in The Visit, the sad matriarch in Relic, an aged wild-haired Laurie Strode in the new Halloween trilogy, Hell, the whole premise of M. Night Shyamalan's old is how scary and weird it is for your body to grow older while your mind remained the same age. I've read a number of think pieces exploring the so-called new era of exploitation, but in this season I wanted to go back and look at the original era of hack horror and how it has evolved or hasn't. Before we begin. Let's define what I'm talking about when I talk about hack horror and exploitation. In the 1960s and all throughout the 70s, there was a growing subgenre of movies that centered older women, usually starring movie stars whose heyday had been decades prior and that Hollywood had decided, air quotes, aged out of stardom. These films were usually stories of women driven mad by jealousy, outsized ego, ambition, aging, troubles with their husbands or their children or lack thereof. For a while there, the hag was Hollywood's new favorite monster. The selling point of these films were not the stories themselves, but the complicated, double-edged appeal of seeing movie stars anew, some of them semi-retired, all of them not getting the caliber and range of roles that they had had at the peak of their careers. Actresses like Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Lauren Bacall, Tallulah Bankhead, Lana Turner or Shelley Winters were all very different kinds of stars. But all of them saw their roles and range of work dwindle as they aged, while their male counterparts were still playing romantic and heroic leads well into their 60s and 70s. And that's without going into the age gap discourse. Aging women, and aging actresses to be specific, became a new type of villain. Revered one day, forgotten the next, these films made glamorous monsters out of them. With hag horror films, though, there was a second wind to their careers. Yes, these roles were often underwritten and mostly trafficked on the faded stardom of giantesses of the silver screen. And at their worst, hag horror films turned them into a sort of laughable monster, full of deranged grandeur, these creatures that were meant to be ogled at. At the same time, they were suddenly a commodity again, they were leading roles, they were getting work and getting talked about. Some of these films, like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, are genuine masterpieces and would be recognized in their time with accolades, awards and huge box office success. Others later on would become camp classics like Death Becomes Her, which I'll cover on later in the series. In between, Haghor has many films of dubious quality, often low-budget B-movie fare, but even then, the movie star quality of these actresses always shone through. So, for this series, I watched all of them. Now, this series will be a bit different from the previous ones of the Final Girls podcast, Maybe I too am having a midlife crisis, but instead of buying a car or moving countries, I watch old horror movies and read Hollywood memoirs. Instead of every episode being a straight conversation with a special guest, I'll be taking you through the history of hack horror. And I wanted to do this primarily because, well, a lot of the films I'm covering are not that great by themselves and some are not as readily available on mainstream streaming platforms. And frankly, the amount of research needed for the series to put these films in context and to understand why they're interesting to revisit or why it's a subgenre that deserves consideration and attention, I couldn't inflict this on any of my usual contributors. So throughout the series, you hear contributions from writers, film critics, essayists, and filmmakers with their thoughts on some of the original films of the hag horror era and the recent resurgence of the hag. I'd also like to quote a huge reference point for the series as a whole: the book *Crazy Old Ladies* by Carolyn Young, and for this episode in particular, *Oscar Wars* by Michael Schulman. Mother, goddamn. A biography of Betty Davis, annotated by Betty Davis herself, and the memoir Swanson and Swanson by, you guessed it, Gloria Swanson. When I started researching this season, I was adamant that the film that had kickstarted this whole subgenre was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962, starring Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. However, very quickly, it became clear that there's two antecedents that would inform the formation of this future genre. In 1950, two such films were released, marking the return to the big screen of two of its erstwhile biggest screen stars who ended up pitted against each other at the Oscars. I'm talking, of course, about Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve. The former, a murder mystery about a faded silent movie star, got 11 nominations in the Academy Awards, and the latter, a satire of theater politics, got 14. I'll spend most of this episode with Sunset Boulevard because it is closest to a horror film, but it is useful to consider All About Eve 2, since its lead actress Betty Davis would become synonymous with hack horror a, a decade and a bit later. All About Eve was written and directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, brother of Herman, best known for writing the screenplay of this little movie called Citizen Kane, which you might've heard of, is about the crossing of paths of established theater actress Margot Channing, played by Davis, and a conniving upstart masquerading as a fan, the titular Eve, played by Anne Baxter. Margot invites chaos into her life when she lets Eve into her inner circle as a kind of act of kindness and vanity, Eve is, in so many words, Margot's biggest fan. Now, while All About Eve is nowhere near a horror film at all, it does have some of those ingredients that would appear over and over again in exploitation films from Baby Jane onwards, similarly to Sunset Boulevard, which we'll talk about in depth throughout this episode, it deals with an actress, an actress who is doubting her place in the world, her place as a woman, as a performer, and her value when she is confronted with someone who is just as talented, just as ambitious, but younger than her.
0: Bill's in love with Margot Channing. He's fought with her, worked with her, and loved her. But 10 years from now, Margot Channing will have ceased to exist. And what's left will be what.
1: Notably, it also stars Betty Davis, who is undisputably one of the greatest actresses and movie stars Hollywood has ever seen. But by 1950, when All About Eve came along, was already seeing the range of roles that she was being offered drying up. So while All About Eve cannot be considered in any way, shape or form a horror film, it is, in its own way, a precursor to the hack horror films that we will be discussing throughout this series. And if it's not already clear, it's a near perfect film that everybody should check out, horror fans or otherwise. Betty Davis, who had been one of Hollywood's greatest actors, not just stars, would be nominated for a ninth time for her turn as Margot. Michael Shulman, the author of Oscar Wars, writes of the similarities between the real and the fictional actress. In Margot Channing, she saw a woman much like her, on the wrong side of 40, full of fight, torn between being a star and being a woman, whatever that meant. Davis, who had been working steadily, was known as much for her incontestable talent as for her magnificent temper. But All About Eve was written about in the press as a comeback for her. Infamous Hollywood gossip columnist Hedda Hopper titled her interview with Davis as Comeback in Eve Proves Betty Still Film Queen writing that a succession of bad yes mediocre pictures had proven that not even the queen was immune to the skids hollywood wondered was betty davis through ouch hedda we'll come back to betty davis in a future episode but for now it's clear that 1950 was the year of the comeback for more than one grand damn of the screen norma you're a woman of 50 now grow up there's nothing tragic about being 50. Not unless you try to be 25 the greatest star of them all. Goodbye, Norma. No one ever leaves a star. That's what makes one a star. Described by film critic Richard Corliss as the definitive Hollywood horror movie, the Hollywood part is as important as the horror. Until Sunset Boulevard, released also in 1950, there had only been a handful of self-referential Hollywood movies, and none of them so biting, so knowing, and so cruel as this one. Sunset Boulevard opens with a dead body and a voiceover delivered by the corpse. Narrated from beyond the grave by Joe Gillis, a semi-failed screenwriter played by William Holden who completely accidentally dives into the world of Hollywood has-been Norma Desmond, played by real-life Hollywood has-been Gloria Swanson. Gillis interrupts a funeral for Norma's pet monkey, and after this morbid meet-cute, she offers him a place to stay in exchange for his help on a script that she has written about Salome, with the intention of playing the lead role herself. He moves into her house and she showers him with gifts, eventually their business arrangement becoming a sexual one. But the entire time he is disgusted with himself, with her, with their arrangement, their relationship, and is seeing more of a young script girl who he's working with in an original screenplay on the side of Norma. Now Norma is presented as delusional and volatile, prone to attempting suicide if rejected, and supported in her delusion by her butler Max, who writes fake fan letters for her every week. For a while, her misguided optimism is manageable, as long as nothing from the outside world penetrates it. She sends her Salome script to her former studio, Paramount Pictures, for the eyes of her former director and real-life Hollywood director Cecil B. DeMille. When she's contacted by the studio, she refuses to speak to anyone but DeMille himself, thinking that it's about her script. But when she rides into the Paramount lot, Dressed, moisturized, peeled, and exfoliated to the hilt. meal, it turns out, just wants to borrow her unusual car. To add insult to insult, she discovers the script Gillis has been working on behind her back and in the ensuing row, he decides to leave Norma for good, cruelly informing her that she has been forgotten by her fans, by Hollywood, by everyone. Distraught. Norma shoots him as he's about to leave and breaks from reality completely. In the now legendary final scene, as police and journalists arrive to the scene of the crime, Norma Desmond descends down the winding stairs of her Hollywood mansion, a perturbed, possessed look on her face, thinking that she's on a movie set, ready for her close up. I spoke to film critic, film historian and friend of the pod, Pamela Hutchinson about Sunset Boulevard and its timeless appeal.
0: Sunset Boulevard is a really interesting film and I honestly think it's quite a pivotal film. There's many different ways you can sort of map from Sunset Boulevard into other aspects of film history as part of the exploitation genre completely. But it's very much a Hollywood film. You know, Billy Wilder, who started his career in the 20s, was watching and writing about film in the 20s and, you know, even started making films in the 20s, he admired films of this era, but he found himself walking around Hollywood or travelling around Hollywood and wondering what it was like in all these old houses where all the old movie stars who hadn't made a film for 30 years lived. So he had this kind of poignant um, uh, sort of way into the story of Sunset Boulevard and what could be a better name for the road, of course, than Sunset Boulevard. But the reality is... um that Hollywood itself was sort of falling apart. So this is post-communist witch hunt, this is post the antitrust suits. Everything that was solid and glorious about the golden age of Hollywood was about to start crumbling down. And you see so many films that are sort of tackling this, but Sunset Boulevard probably is the best, darkest film to deal with the decline of Hollywood. So when you think um, that you've got this kind of shadow history of Hollywood, which is the silent era, which is always sort of parceled off as a separate part of film history, a separate part of Hollywood history, It's almost like in this film, the excesses of the silent era are coming back to mock the failing studio era. And that is what I think is so exciting and so destabilizing and brilliant about Sunset Boulevard.
1: Now, this part is important. Sunset Boulevard is not just a horror film. It's a Hollywood horror film. As Michael Schulman writes in his epic tome on the history of the Academy Awards... It held up a disenchanted mirror to their own industry, one that chewed people up and left them desperate, wasted and mad. Here's Pamela Hutchinson again on how Sunset Boulevard parodies in a really, really dark way the self-cannibalizing society that was the old Hollywood studio system. So
0: you have the studio system sort of coming in in the 20s. By the end of the 20s and by the coming of sound, it's pretty much we've got, we've set with like, you know, a big five and a small three. We've got, we've got the people who are in charge are the people who run the studios and the people who are in charge on the film set are the directors. And before that, it'd often been the star producers. And I don't mean star and producers, I mean producers who were stars. So... We had this system that looked like it was never gonna crumble. I had the studios run by these all all powerful men and stars become commodities. Now stars obviously do have a lot of power in the studio era especially as far as the fans go and the films go but studios can treat them quite badly and they did you know lots of people like warner brothers is a great example you know where um, stars were moved to sue their own studio and they were treated quite quite terribly badly so we take to give everything power over to the men in the offices and When that falls apart, you start thinking, where are the new creatives going to come from that are going to bring Hollywood to the next era? And we have two models in Sunset Boulevard, don't we? Because we've got Norma Desmond, who thinks that stars can produce their own films. And we have these young idealistic screenwriters and script editors who think that, you know, it's going to come from channeling brave new voices in American literature. Now, that did happen to a certain extent, but both of these groups are struggling because Hollywood didn't give up easy on its entrenched power structures.
1: At the time of making Sunset Boulevard, screenwriter Charles Brackett and director Billy Wilder had had a series of successful collaborations. They wrote three films together, The Notchka, The Lost Weekend, and finally, Sunset Boulevard. Interviewed about the film in the New York Times, Brackett said, We wanted to do a story about Hollywood. Someone suggested a relationship between a silent day queen and a young man. She lives in the past, refuses to believe her days as a star are gone, and has sealed herself in one of those run-down immense old mansions on Sunset Boulevard, amid a clutter of mementos like the Louis XV commode and the huge gondola-shaped bed in her bedroom. We see the screenwriter as a nice guy, maybe from the Middle West who can't make the grade in Hollywood and is really down on his luck. This taut, pathetically grotesque woman, this manic depressive, driven to murder when her dream of love, her dream of success, the whole fabric of her life are shattered. To him, she is a temporary haven, a meal ticket. It's pity that keeps him around the place. Now, that's a pretty cruel way to describe one of your lead characters, if you ask me. And it's not difficult to imagine why the casting process for Norma Desmond would would be a difficult one. While Betty Davis scoffed at the idea of ever being talked about as a has-been, Gloria Swanson was unbothered. By the time Sunset Boulevard came along, she had not made a film since 1941 when she had attempted a comeback with the comedy film Father Takes a Wife, But she wasn't languishing away in some mansion, Swanson was busy. She had founded an engineering company and was was exploring how to make buttons out of plastic. She had a beauty line, Essence of Nature, which pioneered the use of organic ingredients. She had a fashion line called Forever Young. She had two children and she was getting divorced for the fifth time. Gloria Swanson was doing fine. To understand the audacity of Paramount Pictures demanding Gloria fucking Swanson to screen test for a role, you have to understand who she was in her heyday. At the height of her stardom, she was the number one box office star by all polls and averaged 10,000 fan letters a week. She was the first actor to earn a $1 million paycheck and one of the first women to set up her own production company. As Schulman writes in Oscar Wars, she helped define movie stardom as a form of American royalty. Swanson had never intended to be a movie star or an actor. She had wanted to be an opera singer. Instead, when she arrived in LA in 1914, she got signed by a studio and made nearly 70 films and short subjects. She even refused a million dollar a year contract with Paramount to join the independent, newly created United Artists. And although she was successful in the transition from silent film to the talkies, her career started declining in the 1930s and in 1938, Swanson made the move to New York City and became one of the first movie stars to embrace the then-threatening world of television. When the call for Sunset Boulevard came along, she had been hosting a TV lifestyle series called The Glorious Once An Hour, when she got struck with appendicitis and was taken to emergency surgery. Whilst recovering in the hospital, she caught a glimpse of what her television show actually looked like. Swanson had been so busy making television that she hadn't bothered to watch any and was immediately disgusted by the low quality of the programs. She resigned immediately from the show and within half an hour of doing that, had a call from her agent about an audition for an upcoming Paramount movie. She declined as she was, quite literally, recovering from surgery. Plus, Swanson was not a woman who was desperate for a comeback. She had made two dozen films for Paramount Pictures, and her face was at the front of a sign in the shape of a comet atop the studio gates. She got another call, this time from Wilder's co-screenwriter Charles Brackett, imploring her to come out to LA to the Paramount lot for the screen test for a few weeks. The promise of a $50,000 paycheck if she got the role, and being put up in a swanky Beverly Hills hotel was enough to get Swanson to swallow her pride and audition for Billy Wilder, who had been a writer on one of her earlier films. Stories vary about the casting process for Norma Desmond. At one point, Charles Brackett told the press, nobody else was considered for the part, We knew no time would be wasted getting into the story as soon as Swanson appeared on screen. Youngsters who never saw her would immediately accept her as an old-time movie queen. Older fans would identify with the characterization and get a bigger emotional wallop from the story. Other accounts say that Beckett and Wilder had a list and approached several other aging movie stars before they got in touch with Swanson. At the point they were casting Sunset Boulevard, the first generation of movie stars had reached middle age. Hulled up in mansions like fossils no one had bothered to excavate, their films disintegrating in studio vaults, writes Schulman. For women, valued for their youth and beauty while it lasted, the calculus was particularly cruel. To be a star was to have the most visible power a woman could get in Hollywood, but it was power in the viz. You had to be pretty, thin, and with rare exceptions, white. You had to endure the attentions of influential men who treated sex as a form of droit de seigneur, the right of feudal lords to bed women on their wedding nights. If you strayed from a narrow moral path like Ingrid Bergman, who became pregnant during an affair with Roberto Rossellini, you were banished. You were pitted against one another, if not by yourselves, as with Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland, then by gossip columns, the studios and the Oscars, where the best actress race served as a contrived catfight. And if you did nothing wrong at all, you would commit the crime of aging. Hence, a plethora of potential Norma Desmonds. Out of the people rumored to be on that list... There was Greta Garbo, who was living in a self-imposed exile and refused to come out of it for any role that wasn't, no joke, that of a woman posing as a male clown. Raunchy pre-code star Mae West got pitched Sunset Boulevard too, but she considered that she wouldn't need a gigolo to flatter her, Mary Pickford, once the most powerful female star in Hollywood and one of the founding members of the Academy, got approached, but was, Wilder claimed, too drunk to be interested. Paula Negri, a famous vamp of the silent era, declared herself too young to play a 50-year-old. When Swanson was screen testing, her age became an issue, but not in the way that you'd expect. A fitness and health food fanatic, at 50 years old Gloria Swanson looked too youthful for the role of decrepit, isolated Norma Desmond, especially when put next to her decades younger love interest. Montgomery Clift, who had originally been cast to play Joe Gillis, backed out of the project supposedly because he did not want to play love scenes with an older woman. And was replaced by William Holden, who was 31 at the time swanson in her memoir shot back with women of 50 who take care of themselves don't look old that's the point can't you use makeup on mr holden instead to make him look more youthful here's pamela hutchinson talking about who gloria swanson was in her heyday and the additional layers of meaning that her casting brought to sunset boulevard
0: she had this partnership at the studio that became Paramount. So when Norma Desmond says that, um, that there wouldn't be a Paramount Studios without her, Gloria Swanson knows the truth of that. There probably wouldn't have been because her and Cecil B. DeMille made these sex comedies. And oh, my word, were they popular. And uh, You were talking about the early 20s when Hollywood could be a bit frisky. Uh, both on set and off, obviously. And these were films called things like Male and Female and Why Change Your Wife? And there was always sort of a gratuitous scene in which Gloria Swanson's clothes would slip dangerously off or she'd be seen taking a bath or she'd be courting with lions or just your, your general everyday Gloria Swanson activities. It's a little bit artificial. So she's associated with this kind of artificiality and she... Was a great comic. So when you see Norma Desmond doing impersonation of Charlie Chaplin, she's actually done that in one of her twenties films, the film Manhandled, which is a great comedy. Uh, She she transfers. She becomes the star producer. She moves the United Artists, and she starts making the film she wants to make. And they're actually even more adult and even more sophisticated. So you know we do know that Gloria Swanson was a a very uh, serious person and a person who kind of wanted to push the limits what hollywood could show when it came to sex on screen talking about sexuality female sexuality and even sex work she did have limits this is why she famously walked off the set of a film where she thought a scene was going to be set in a nightclub and she walked in and she um well i don't know how she recognized that it was a brothel but she clearly did and she decided not to make that film anymore So she had, this, she has this incredible power as this image of like sex and vitality and youth and excitement from the nineteen twenties. She made a film with Rudolph Valentino. She and she is gorgeous. I mean, she was quite go-getting, and there's probably a reason why Cecil B. DeMille called her in real life as he does in the film, "Young Fellow." Um, <laughs> partly perhaps, because she's quite a sort of boyish-looking person. But yeah, she was quite a remarkable character. And so now, when you have Norma Desmond as played by Gloria Swanson, she inhabits all of those characters—the sort of grandeur of her and the kind of un—you know, unabashed sex appeal that she has. The way that she uh, sort of almost predator-like ensnares this young man in her sex nest—is that a technical term? I don't know. We couldn't. is her. now.
1: Okay. The cast was assembled, but the script was not yet finished. Wilder and Beckett had the basic story, former movie queen returns, seduces a young writer and somewhere along their lines there's a murder, and they filled out the details melding the real-life history of Gloria Swanson with that of their creation, Norma Desmond. Swanson supplied stills of her younger self for the set, and Norma's costuming pulled from some of her past roles and other silent film stars like Paula Negri. Play Norma's butler was Austrian film director Erich von Stroheim, who had directed Gloria Swanson and the unfinished 1928 disaster Queen Kelly, which partly ruined both their careers and lost Swanson a million dollars of her own money. When Norma plays Bridge with her old silent film buddies, dubbed The Waxworks, the cast was pulled from real-life silent era stars, Anna Q. Nilsson, Buster Keaton and H.B. Warner. The scene in Sunset Boulevard when Norma Desmond returns to the Paramount lot and is mopped by old-timers who recognize her from her heyday is taken directly from what happened to Swanson on her first day on set. Look,
0: there's Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond! Norma Desmond! Why, I thought she was dead. How nice Welcome
1: home, Mr. Norma Desmond is simultaneously the protagonist, antagonist, and hag of Sunset Boulevard. When we see her first, Norma is borderline vampiric. She peeks out from the ruinous, gargantuan Hollywood mansion where she sequestered herself, coming into the light only covered in clothing, a headscarf and sunglasses. She grasps her cigarette holder like a weapon and her hands look like claws. Costume designer Edith Head recalled that Norma, quote, was to be a poignant, sad character, a woman who didn't realize that she had passed her prime by 30 years. Norma lives in the past, refusing to come out of her hiding place for fear of being confronted with a reality she doesn't recognize and that doesn't recognize her. No appointment
0: necessary. I'm bringing Norma Desmond. Norma who? Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond is a woman who was powerful, rich and sexy and still is powerful, rich and sexy But she's sort of doing it in private, which sends a person a little bit mad, I think. Um, You know, if you love Norma Desmond, you're probably one of those right thinking people who also love Lena Lamont and Singing in the Rain. These are the these are the great silent divas and they cannot be contained. This is the this is the truth of this character. So. um, she doesn't have the same power in the studio system, but within her own home, she is the queen of the household. You know, she's very much. And if we're talking about exploitation and the idea of the hag and horror, she's very much the Miss Havisham of her house. You know, um, she still maybe be living in the past, but it's a past where other people are maintaining the illusion for her that she's a star. So her butler is writing her fan mail. She still is incredibly rich. Still has all her old stories and all her old friends, and she lives in the heart of Hollywood. She just doesn't have that one thing that she wants, which is the career to be back in the spotlight, to be on the set.
1: Her house in particular has a clear significance and would influence the way that other hack exploitation films would use these gothic immense mansions to illustrate the mental and physical decline of their hag protagonists here's pamela hutchinson again talking about the meaning and the extravagance of hollywood architecture and how it plays a role in sunset boulevard
0: so hollywood you know used to be an orange grove And then when the, you know, the galloping tin types came in, you know, they started building, they built studios and they built houses and they built bigger and bigger houses as, you know, people made more and more money. And so all of the architecture of Hollywood is sort of imbued with the history of the film industry and the excesses thereof. And there's an idea, um, especially, which, you know, hasn't gone away, that the idea that the silent era was particularly excessive. So every bit of opulence and grandeur in Norma Desmond's house, it's exactly what you might expect from the silent era. And this is a suggestion in the post-war, early 1950s world that it's too much. Everything about Norma Desmond is too much. It was a great big white elephant of a place. The kind crazy movie people built in the crazy twenties. A neglected house gets an unhappy look. This one had it in spades. It was like that old woman in Great Expectations. That Miss Havisham in her rotting wedding dress and her torn veil, taking it out on the world because she'd been given the go-by. Not only that, but, you know, I mean, it's the I think it's the dance floor that Valentino suggested she lay down. And many of the photographs and mementos in the house are, well, obviously they are of Norma Desmond, but they're actually just from Gloria Swanson's own apartment, you know, and there's an idea that there's something really creepy about this and you know it continues if you you know watch the godfather the house with the hollywood producer with the horse in the horse's head in his bed that's harold lloyd's house It was sort of well known and hired out because people would hire out that house because they'd be like it's harold lloyd's house that means it's one of the biggest largest craziest lavish mansions that we can find you know and i think there's sort of an idea Often in these industries that maybe, you know, some of the old people shouldn't be holding on to all the power and the wealth and literally the sort of stones of the town. And, you know, maybe it should be fresh and modern and all the young uncu- up and coming people. And yet, and yet, if, as long as you didn't lose all your money in the stock market crash, <laughs> you could be, you know, like Mary Pickford, hold up in Pickfair, you know, drinking quite a lot for the rest of her life, you know, and the idea that you're only... Successful and rich because you are a public face, so anyone can see in the pictures, and then you become a recluse, it's a bit of a slap in the face to your audience, and it's sort of again considered to be something quite strange. So, you know, Norma Desmond herself is obviously always looking for the spotlight, always looking for the key light, and yet she lives in this sort of darkness. And you know, it's it's, this everything about this is meant to sort of make you think that everything is completely backwards everything is completely wrong but watch this film more than once and you think amazing
1: sunset boulevard would provide the blueprint for a lot of the exploitation films that followed it had a movie star that audiences remembered but hadn't seen in a while it had this role of a woman driven mad or mad already out of bounds and out of place and out of time isolated and very much not the usual image we have of an older woman. She's either childless or estranged from her children or her children are dead and she is either too sexual or too frigid and very often in denial about her age. Plus, she lives in a big scary house. We'll see these elements come back up over and over again as we delve deeper into hack horror in this series. One other more concrete element that Sunset Boulevard put into place is hack horror's fascination with actresses. The tools of their trade are their faces and bodies after all and hack horror often concerns itself with the particular madness that an industry like Hollywood creates when youth and beauty start to disappear. There is this horrifying montage of beauty treatments that Norma subjects herself to in the film, all to make herself look younger, more presentable, ahead of her meeting with Paramount. As I was rewatching this scene, I thought about my own 10 step skincare routine, the one that I perform ritualistically every single morning and have done since I was in my early twenties. I thought about the money that I've spent on creams, serums, face masks. And I think, is this the road to Norma Desmond style madness? Here's Pamela Hutchinson again.
0: But there are some things In Norma Desmond's world, which are obviously what we might call like inversions of things that are considered natural. So she has a pet chimp. Who she obviously lavishes a lot of attention on, including a funeral that is obviously is obviously considered to be a kind of grotesque parody of normal family life, you know, that A, that a mother would be burying her child, but that the child is a chimp. And so, you know, in these ways, there's lots of ways in which they try and suggest that normal Desmond is basically an inversion of everything that should be natural the fact that she has a younger lover and she pays for his clothes there's um the the film is more or less coy about the whole sexual relationship until there's a a line about a gigolo and you have to admit at that point that it's quite clear that much as he pretends he's just trying to get his car back this man is having a sexual relationship with norma desmond and uh we are of course because it's 1950 blaming her and natural sexuality for what we consider to be an unnatural partnership even though we're of course um you know we we could just leave well alone. I think the line in the film is, there's nothing wrong with being 50 as long as you're not trying to be 25. And there's always this suggestion that she is pretty much in her mind, pickled in aspic. No, you can't be pickled in aspic, can you? No, preserved in aspic. She is in her mind, preserved in the aspic of the silent era, which, you know, as I say, has a lot to do with her approach to the industry and her approach to subject matter that films might be. But the film can't resist making all these digs about the way that she appears and the fact that she's single and she's not a married grandmother and and so forth and you know it's a film from 1950 let's not be surprised it's incredibly aggressive one of the wonderful things about the fact that actually we all actually like Norman desmond means that we can enjoy a little bit of a non-conforming woman a woman who resists sort of what the sort of policing of femininity and sexuality that was very much in vogue in the 50s and still is in vogue so you know the film is trying to tell you how awful she is all the time and there is a little part of you that says yes yes but what about those dresses though of course the other reason why they're great of horror is of course the fact that they dare to put themselves on screen considering all this means that you think well if they'll do this who knows they must be psychotic god knows what they're going to do stay away from the swimming pool i would (laughs) because these women are wild. They've been told their whole life to look pretty, and now look at what they're doing. The stars are ageless, aren't they?
1: Norma Desmond only comes alive when the spotlight is on her, and she's only recognised when she steps into the light. In that scene, when she visits Paramount Studios, A worker shines the spotlight on her, and it's only then that people see her, much to her delight. In the same way that vampires can only exist in the shadows, Norma Desmond can only exist in the spotlight. The film's final scene After Norma has shot Joe Gillis three times in the back and the police come to apprehend her is a head-on collision between Norma's delusion and reality. Swanson shot the scene barefoot, terrified of losing her footing if she wore high heels to descend down the curvy and narrow staircase. She recalled... I imagined the steel ramrod in me from head to toe, holding me together and descending as if in a trance. Norma descends down the staircase, her eyes demented, her hands writhing. Wilder let the camera lose focus as she approached it, letting the film end on a terrifying, out-of-focus close-up of a woman driven mad. When Wilder yelled printed on set, Swanson burst into tears and at the end of the shoot, the cast and crew gifted her a plaque with the inscription, to proclaim that Gloria Swanson is the greatest star of them all. Sunset Boulevard acts as a cautionary tale about nostalgia and self-delusion. At a star-studded private early screening of the film, attended by movie stars, studio executives and assorted Hollywood power players, Swanson turned up in a floor-length silver lamé dress, and reactions were, to put it mildly, intense. Barbara Stanwyck fell to her knees. Mary Pickford left, overcome. An MGM studio mogul Louis B. Mayer barked at Billy Wilder, You befouled your own nest. You should be kicked out of this country, tarred and feathered, goddamn foreigner son of a bitch. Reports vary, but Wilder's retort was either why don't you go fuck yourself or go shit in your hat. DM me which one you prefer. The reviews were largely positive, except a rare panning from The New Yorker, which called the film a pretentious slice of Roquefort. And it drew praise from the other comeback queen of that award season, Betty Davis, who said... It was a relief to find one actress portrayed on the screen who wasn't starving. Gloria Swanson was loaded with money. Incidentally, I think she gave a heavenly performance. Film critic James Agee wrote in Sign and Sound, A sexual affair between a rich woman of 50 and a kept man half her age is not exactly a usual version of boy meets girl, nor is it customary for the hero and his best friend's fiancé to fall in love and like it. Nor, as a rule, is a movie hero so weak and so morally imperfect that he can less properly be called a hero than an authentic, lucky and unadmirable human being. The New York Times reviewed it as Such a clever compound of truth and legend, and so richly redolent of the past, yet so contemporaneous that it seemingly speaks with great authority. Swanson toured America to support the release, visiting 33 cities in a few months, doing endless interviews and signing every autograph. All this effort paid off. Sunset Boulevard received 11 Oscar nominations, including one for Swanson, her third in total and her first nomination since 1931. Swanson refused to attend the Academy Awards ceremony itself, unwilling to skip out on a performance of the play she was starring in on Broadway. She instead spent the evening of the ceremony on stage and then, at a little party, listening to the Oscars on the radio, together with six other nominees. Jose Ferrer, director George Cukor, Celeste Holm and Judy Holliday, who ended up beating both Swanson and Davis and took the Best Actress award for her role in Born Yesterday. Incidentally, Betty Davis didn't attend the Oscars either that year. She was filming a movie in Yorkshire. The success of Sunset Boulevard meant a resurgence in Swanson's career. She continued to work on the stage and was a frequent talk show guest, but also had the troublesome aftereffect of merging the public's idea of the successful Gloria Swanson and the deluded Norma Desmond. This is Gloria Swanson herself talking about the aftereffect of Sunset Boulevard. You know, the people are terrified of me because of that role. A lot of people. Look at me as if I'm gonna go, you know, off the beam anymore. And suddenly talk how did you talk I, Oh Max Max you know, that kind of a voice. And that isn't me at all. Not there's no I don't know anyone like that in California. In her autobiography, Swanson on Swanson, published in nineteen eighty, she writes After nine years of obscurity in pictures, I was in the glaring spotlight again thanks to Billy Wilder and a brilliant script. I already had another picture and another plane lined up. Five unsuccessful marriages were, thank heaven, behind me. And with Dr. Beeler's help, I looked pretty good for 52. But tonight I had seen for the first time with perfect clarity that I had a huge specter in the spotlight with me. She was just about 10 feet tall and her name was Norma Desmond. During my years of obscurity, the public had forgotten Gloria Swanson. In order to spring back to them in one leap, I had to have a bigger-than-life part. I had found it all right. In fact, my present danger seemed to lie in the fact that I had played the part too well. I may not have got an Academy Award for it, but I had somehow convinced the world, once again, of the corniest of all theatrical clichés. That on very rare artistic occasions, the actor actually becomes the part. Barrymore is Hamlet. Garbo is Camille. Swanson is Norma Desmond. After her successful comeback in Sunset Boulevard, Swanson received a ton of offers, most of them dealing with aging, eccentric actresses. As Swanson herself put it, it was Hollywood's old trick, repeat a successful formula until it dies. But Swanson was far from Norma, And she walked away from these offers, choosing only to move forward. She reasoned that, having played the part at 51, she could continue doing a version of Norma Desmond for decades to come, quote, until at last I became some sort of creepy parody of myself, or rather, Norma Desmond, a shadow of a shadow. She didn't. Instead, she chose to do what Gloria Swanson would always do. Whatever the hell she wanted. And this time, she would become an opera singer. Thank you so much for listening to the Final Ghost Podcast and the first episode of our series on hags. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented. And you can dive into our previous seasons where we have covered witches, vampires, monsters and teen horror over wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to Pamela Hutchinson for her contributions to this episode. And I hope you'll join me next week where Betty Davis will be joined by Joan Crawford to star in the definitive hack horror movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane?